From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. After the midterm elections, we speak to environmental justice activists about what the election means for the critical issues in their communities. Cruz won. I think the, the politics in Texas is still the same. Around here, it's like industry, corporations are too big to fail, and they're above the law. And did the vote results in Florida and Georgia raise eyebrows about the Me Too movement? Journalist John Jeter has questions. People always complain about blacks practicing identity politics. We're really not the ones who practice identity politics. We, we vote in our interest, and we wish white people would too. The problem is they don't. They vote. They choose being white over being a worker almost every single time. All that and much more coming up on our post-election special. Is Donald Trump above the rule of law? Is the President of the United States above the rule of law? Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. While voting suppression tactics and irregularities in Georgia and Florida made national news this week, there was comparatively little attention to the same or worse conditions in Maryland, where another African-American candidate, Ben Jealous, was the Democratic candidate for governor. Pete Tucker has more. In Tuesday's election, Maryland Democrats held on to their overwhelming congressional advantage while picking up seats in both the State House and State Senate. Democrats also added to their county executive chairs with wins in both Anne Arundel and Howard County, where Calvin Ball was elected the county's first African-American county executive. But in the governor's race, incumbent Republican Larry Hogan bested Democratic challenger Ben Jealous, the former head of the NAACP, by 13 points. That's decidedly less than the 20 points the Washington Post predicted Hogan would win by as recently as a week ago. And that difference might have been even less had there not been widespread voting irregularities in heavily African-American precincts. In Prince George's County alone, over a dozen polling places ran out of printed ballots. At Brandywine Elementary, NBC4 reporter Shamari Stone posted this video to Twitter. Good evening, I'm in Prince George's County at Brandywine Elementary School and they did not have enough ballots here. And some people tell me that they have been waiting here since four o'clock over the past four to five hours. I just want to show you this line. As he filmed, Shamari Stone walked the entire line, which he reported had more than 1,500 people in it. Stone's stunning two-minute video concluded with this interview. You've been waiting in line for around five hours. You look absolutely exhausted. What happened? Totally exhausted. They said they ran out of ballots. We've been waiting. Um, we've been sitting in line. They said it was going to get ballots. We waited. We waited longer and longer, and we're just still trying to vote. We're just trying to get our vote in, get our voices heard. Meanwhile, next door in Montgomery County, the Prisoner Center in Burtonsville, another heavily African-American precinct, also experienced hours-long wait times. What took place there was, quote, an attempt at voter suppression. Montgomery County Council member Tom Hucker, who spent time at the Prisoner Center on Election Day, told The Post. This isn't the first time the Prisoner Center has faced challenges, Council member Hucker told me in his office. Three years ago, 
Montgomery County's Republican-controlled Board of Elections tried to stop the Prasner Center from being an early voting center. Your listeners should know a little bit of background about the Prasner Center. It's also the um, an early voting site. We have several in Montgomery County, and we have a majority Republican uh, Board of Elections appointed by Governor Hogan. And um, uh, it was about three years ago that the Board of Elections held a uh, illegal secret meeting um, to come up with a scheme that they they disclosed um, uh, to in a, in a council hearing that they um, uh, plan to move, close the Prasner Center as a uh, early voting site and move it to Olney, uh, which is farther away from transit and a um, um, much less diverse community, most, you know, nearly all white. And um, the, um, there was a lot of, there. they also proposed moving it from uh, another early voting center from the Lawton uh, Community Center in Chevy Chase um, to, uh, out to Potomac, another area farther from transit and farther from a, a really dense urban sort of community. So um, there was a lot of, there was a big coalition we um, put together to push back against that decision. Uh, and ultimately the State Board of Elections um, overruled the local board and um, insisted on the return of those two early voting centers to the Lawton Center and to, to the Prasner Center. So, you know, in that environment, uh, when the board had already attempted to close the most popular early voting center for African Americans, and in light of the fact that you had very high voter turnout there in the primary election and during early voting uh, for the general election, uh, you would think that they would go to extra trouble to make sure that there were adequate number of workers and scanners in place at the Prasner Center on Election Day. But of course, obviously they didn't or we wouldn't have had lines like that. Meanwhile, next door in Prince George's County, over a dozen polling centers ran out of paper ballots, creating also hours-long waits there. Uh, the Washington Post wrote, quote, As a result, hundreds of voters in the Democratic strongholds of Prince George's and Montgomery were still in line when the Associated Press called the Maryland gubernatorial race for Governor Larry Hogan at 9.07 p.m. Absolutely. I mean, we, there's problems all over the state. They're very avoidable um, and, and predictable, um, you know, the, as I said earlier, you know, voting shouldn't be an all-day affair, and we shouldn't have barriers in place that especially affect low-income voters, African-American and Latino voters, and, you know, young parents and elderly voters who can't stand in line, um, you know, two and three hours to vote um, because they have, um, you know, they, they're, they're elderly or they're disabled or they have kids to pick up or, you know, jobs to get to or, or many other factors. Um, if you look at my Twitter feed, I interviewed several voters who um, had to leave the poll, one carrying a baby, one waiting outside because while her with a toddler in a stroller while her husband was waiting in line, so she she presumably got to vote, but only because she showed up with her spouse. And um, another woman who was a former chief judge of the, uh, in Burtonsville, um, who said uh, she had not seen uh, uh, such a disorganized uh, precinct uh, election setup in that precinct since uh, Nixon Kennedy in 1960. Wow. Um, so you know this is a, a, a self imposed problem, and it's really high time the Board of Elections uh, put adequate resources in place, especially in these uh, precincts that affect uh, largely of color voters. Lastly, Councilmember Hucker, it's not only that it impacts this election, it sends a message for next election as well. If you're a, a, a someone who has a certain amount of time to vote, and it should be quick and easy, 
and you understand that your polling place you're gonna have a couple hours that's gonna send a message as to how costly you know time consuming it's gonna be for you going forward and no question and w- word gets around you know if you talk to your friend or your family member and they had to stand in line for two hours uh, you don't have a real incentive to hop in your car and go vote as much as we're sending out messages urging people to vote um, the the what they're what they're forced to deal with the barriers that are put up by the Board of Elections um, you know undercut that uh, greatly and uh, it's it's very frustrating we'll never know uh, Pete the number of people who drove to Praisner um, or took a bus and parked in the lot and got off or got off the bus and then saw a line and maybe they waited half an hour maybe they gave up right then but I talked to numerous people in just a short sampling uh, short amount of time there small sampling of voters um, we'll never know how many didn't make the effort and we'll never know how many went there and uh, couldn't wait in line for two or three hours and turned around and that that that's terrible for them and you're right the message gets gets around and makes it harder to vote in the future one other thing popped into mind it's these were heavily African-American precincts, and the gubernatorial candidate that Larry Hogan was running against was a civil rights leader, uh, Ben Jealous. And I was assuming initially that if these were polling issues, that this was in heavily Democratic Montgomery County, uh, Democrats who would have had some oversight. But what I'm hearing you say is that, in fact, uh, this is a statewide thing, and this was Governor Hogan's bo- Board of Elections that um, – where that where the fault lies? Yeah, that's a widely misunderstood um, thing. I mean, our county government, you're right, is um, is we have an all Democratic council and a Democratic county executive, but the elections uh, in Maryland are run by the state and they are administered locally by a local uh, county board of elections, all of whom are appointed by the governor. So you have uh, a majority, um, you know, you have majority Republican board that. Um, sets the, you know, sets the terms of the, the election operations. Anything else you want to add? Um, they clearly need more, you know, I believe, you know, more budget, more scanners, more poll workers, uh, more equipment in a lot of these polls. And, uh, you know, they have to request it. I'm certainly prepared to push for more resources for the Board of Elections um, in the next budget. Um, but they really have to request it. Um, you know, in other agencies, sometimes the county council will identify an unmet need and put money in the budget. And then the executive branch or that agency won't spend it because they didn't believe in the need in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we really need the Board of Elections to sort of own up to this uh, and to say that nobody should be standing in line two or three hours. This was not an unforeseen circumstance. Um, and that they need, you know, they need backup machines. They need machines that are tested and work um, and aren't going to break by 11 a.m. on Election Day. Um, and they need to request, at you know, the resources that they need to make sure everybody can vote in an expeditious manner. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Montgomery County Council Member Tom Hucker. For On the Ground, this is Pete Tucker. In area activism news, D.C. Indy Media reported this week that Kurds demonstrated outside the State Department against what they described as Turkey's renewed bombing and shelling of Kurdish communities in northern Syria. They said one bomb killed a small child on her way to school. Also, hundreds rallied in front of the White House on November 8th, protesting the forced resignation of Attorney General Jeff Sessions and what many experts say is the illegal appointment of an interim AG without congressional approval. 
And DC Indie Media also reported that on November 7th, anti-fascist demonstrators rallied outside the Northwest DC home of Fox News show host Tucker Carlson, saying that the ultra right-wing host has contributed to an atmosphere of racism and hate in the country. Actions in D.C. this weekend in the run-up to Veterans Day will focus on war and peace and the impact of illegal U.S. interventions abroad. Sunday, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, there will be a Veterans Peace March by Veterans for Peace, Military Families Speak Out, and many other organizations to honor those who have given their lives in war and to commit to a world without war. They are using the hashtag #EndAllWars at home and abroad, and more information about their event is on Facebook. Also, November 9th through November 11th is the Peace Congress in U.S. wars at home and abroad to build on the victory of getting Trump's military parade canceled and reclaiming Armistice Day. This action includes a vigil on the National Mall, a sit-in at the Veterans Administration, a concert, and a plenary at the Capitol Hill Presbyterian Church on 4th Street Southeast. And for more information, visit online notrumpmilitaryparade.us. And finally, in culture and media, after Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg fell in her office Wednesday night and fractured three ribs, well-wishers flooded social media with offers of their own ribs or even organs to the 85-year-old justice. Justice Ginsburg was admitted to George Washington Hospital for observation and treatment. Also this week, Philadelphia rapper Meek Mill spoke Wednesday on the criminal justice system at an event sponsored by Georgetown University Law Students. He tweeted after the event, quote, they really got me speaking to colleges and bleep. Life crazy, LOL, street knowledge, end quote. And thousands are expected to attend Catharsis on the Mall through Sunday, November 11th, This fourth straight year for the event exists, according to its organizers, to create accessible spaces for healing, expanding the bounds of expression, connection, and inclusion in public and civic spaces through direct engagement in participatory art, political action, and sacred practice. And they believe that these activities will restore ourselves and our communities fostering social change. This weekend's activities will culminate in the burning of a temporary temple structure built on the mall. In a Facebook Live video post, organizer Natalie Ethos de Leon described the special need for catharsis in 2018. We just wanted to ask you all to guide your energy and towards something that serves to your higher self and to who you believe you are. And I think a lot of us feel this way about catharsis. It's like a place in a city, and not only just a city, but our nation's capital, where we all can be our highest selves and advocate for a future and a, and a current moment where we all can be ourselves. The website for the event is catharsisonthemall.com. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, historian Gerald Horn, stay with us. Good God of grace, Lord, will I have his mercy? Hey. 
me say, oh, slave driver Time is catching up on you Oh, slave driver I know you since them are on So carry yeah. we go home I bring the brown a Welcome on a Rasta man A Rasta no live on no Catalan Carry we go home Queen from England Now she come away well like Henry Mata Century point of a century full of separation And after 400 years me send a reparation I know them want to kill me with the taxation But I beg you please take me to the motherland I beg you carry me go home I bring me from the east This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, for more international news, I'm joined on the line this week from Atlanta by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, there's so much happening here in terms of the election, mass shootings, political and racial vitriol. I wanted to not forget what's happening internationally since we spoke last John Bolton has made a very bellicose statement talking about the troika of tyranny, referring to Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. And he also was praising Bolsonaro, this neo-fascist just elected in Brazil. So I wanted to first get your take on those developments. Well, I'm sure the Cubans took note of that incendiary speech by John Bolton because in the last week or so, you may have seen the pictures of the new Cuban leader, Diaz-Canel, shaking hands and embracing Vladimir Putin in Moscow, then going on to North Korea and meeting with Chairman Kim, uh, stopping in China and meeting with Xi Jinping. I think it's apparent that the Cubans expect the new right-wing government in Brazil who joined with U.S. imperialism in a squeeze play, not only on Cuba, but as Mr. Bolton's remarks suggested, also on Venezuela and Nicaragua. I dare say that the Yankees may wind up getting their fingers burned, but I'm afraid to say that they seemingly have not learned the lessons of history. So for all of our listeners, what are some of those lessons of history of the United States-Cuba relationship? Well, what I mean is, is that there's a documentary film, I think it's called 638 Ways to Kill Fidel Castro. That is to say that from the beginning of the Cuban Revolution in 1959 up until a few years ago when Mr. Castro passed from the scene, the Yankees attempted to assassinate him hundreds of times. There was a so-called Bay of Pigs invasion of 1962. 
There were numerous attempts to overthrow the Cuban Revolution, all of which came up empty, and it's difficult to see how Mr. Trump can change that record. Also in the past week, the Trump administration has voiced an apparent about-face in terms of the U.S. continuing to fund and support this attack by Saudi Arabia on Yemen. The United States is supplying billions of dollars of arms to Saudi Arabia and also assisting in targeting locations for bombing in Yemen, which would actually, as we have discussed, make the United States complicit in war crimes because these bombs have targeted civilian locations. We have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people dead from direct bombing, starvation, and cholera there. So what's your take on this apparent about face and the U.S. calling for a ceasefire in Yemen and more pressure to end this, this assistance to Saudi Arabia? Well, first of all, there's increasing global pressure on Washington and on Saudi Arabia with regard to this Yemen conflict. It has only been accelerated by the apparent death, murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the Istanbul consulate of Saudi Arabia that outraged millions. And I would also point to the fact that there's been a lot of protests, not least in Washington, D.C., about this genocidal conflict in Yemen. On top of that, I think that the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, has raised concerns in Washington, not only because of Yemen and the killing of Khashoggi, but also, I think, because of his attempt to get closer to Russia, his attempt to get closer to China, And I think that the Yankees feel that if they're pouring all this money into Saudi Arabia, they should have a more pliable puppet. And Mr. MBS does not seem to be fulfilling that role. So I think all of those forces and factors are causing a reassessment of U.S. policy towards Yemen. And I would also add to that litany the recent article in the New York Times magazine by Robert Wirth on Yemen which painted a very disturbing picture of the genocidal role that Saudi Arabia is playing there. So the third bit of international news I want to cover is that's related to the Trump administration is the fact that I think this is a week that the sanctions on Iran were supposed to kick in. And I understand that there's a lot of effort on the part of European countries to circumvent those sanctions, to push back against them. And I also read this week that there may be new sanctions on Russia. Well, there's concern with Russia's role because Russia has said that it will not observe the U.S. sanctions with regard to Iran. Uh, Russia has suggested that it will engage in a barter arrangement for Iranian oil to circumvent the dollar and then will sell that Iranian oil and and return the profits to Tehran. Uh, Turkey has received an apparent waiver because of its dependence on Iranian oil, and so have other U.S. allies, including uh, South Korea and Japan. I think that, as your comment suggested, this attempt to sanction Iran further is particularly raising concern in Europe. Uh, That, along with the United States' apparent attempt to withdraw 
from the nuclear forces agreement with Moscow is leading to this idea in Europe that Washington is not paying attention to European concerns. Europe feels that it will be caught in a squeeze play between Washington and Moscow as tensions increase. And I think that when Mr. Trump travels to Paris in the next 24 to 48 hours, he'll get an earful about this. And in fact, President Macron has said that there needs to be an EU army, a European army. And if that develops threat to the U.S.-dominated NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and once again will cause neoconservatives and hawks who are obsessively pro-NATO to raise even more questions about the misrule of Donald J. Trump. Wow, so this proposed EU army would be something separate from NATO. And I'm wondering if when Macron made this proposal or statement, it was in any way referencing the desire to decrease the number of U.S. bases and U.S. soldiers or military personnel in Europe. Well, as you know, France, moved years ago to oust U.S. bases from its territory. Now, Germany continues to hold U.S. bases. I'm not sure if Germany will move in the same direction France has, but certainly this idea of the U.S. of an EU army, it's not only a threat, I would say, to NATO and also raises concerns amongst hawks and neoconservatives, I would also say Africa should be quite concerned about the development of the EU army, particularly this tendency to interfere and intervene in the internal affairs of West African states in particular. Well, finally, I want to know if you have any little known international news that's kind of gotten lost in the the shuffle or the fake news uh, or a postscript to this week's election here in the United States. Well, I'm not sure if it's little known, but I'm afraid to say that given the fact that there is this impulse in the Democratic Party to seek what they call bipartisanship, there will be quite a bit of pressure to find common ground with Donald J. Trump. And I dare say that part of that common ground would be to put more pressure on China. You have those like Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio are recently reelected, who in recent days and weeks has actually expressed a bit of support for Mr. Trump's crackdown on China with regard to trade, as have a number of other Democrats as well. And this is a quite dangerous tendency, but it is fair to say that this issue of concern with China helps to unite the U.S. ruling class and helps to generate that so-called bipartisanship that they hold so dear. Yeah, well, I guess that kind of Cold War is definitely something to keep an eye on, especially if the Democrats and Republicans also seek bipartisanship in terms of rebuilding this country's crumbling infrastructure. In that type of effort, China may well be made to be the boogeyman as this country attempts to make those improvements. And so those relationships will be important to watch. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. 
Thank you for inviting me. Michelle Roberts of the On the Ground Show. I'm on the ground here in Pasadena, Texas, just outside of Houston, Texas, where they call it Stinkadena. I'm here with some of Texas' most renowned activists, Brian Paras of the National Sierra Club and Diane Wilson, famously known as the Fisherwoman. We want to talk about what's happening now after the election. What does this mean to Texas to have Ted Cruz back? And locally, what does it mean to see some of the changes you've had in your communities regarding some of your local elections and the impacts on environmental justice in your communities? Diane. Well, I can tell you a little bit about my county uh, because uh, Beto lost 10 to 1 in my county. They all went for Ted Cruz. So I come from a very entrenched, deep red county. I was astonished the amount of people that voted, astonished by that, as they say, Texas don't vote very often. And uh, I was astonished about how many people came out and how close Beto, which gives an indication of the change in Texas. So I think it was a really good indication. But Cruz won. I think the the politics in, in Texas is still the same. I think with Congress out there, maybe they can slow down some of this fast-tracking, uh, pulling regulations and all this EPA stuff. But locally, what I will feel is the same thing I felt this year and last year. It's very difficult to fight 
these chemical corporations, it's extremely difficult, almost to the point of non-existent, to get enforcement action from them. It's, uh, around here, it's pretty much, it's like industry corporations are too big to fail, and they're above the law. And, uh, you know, I've got a $59 million lawsuit against a company who has... Uh, According to their own internal documents, they have been putting out these pellets and powder, losing it to the environment for roughly 25 years. And there has not been a single violation afforded them. There has not been a single penalty afforded them. And uh, so this is what I face, and it hasn't changed, and I face the same battles. Wow. Diane, can you tell us what that company is? Uh, yes, it's Formosa Plastics, and they're starting a new expansion. Right now, they're probably 2,200 acres. They're probably 3,000 workers, probably 1,100 contract companies. Uh, they're starting a $9 billion expansion in uh, Louisiana. And uh, we recently heard they were disbanding their Delaware plant and bringing it to Texas, and uh, we've heard through the grapevine that a lot of it was uh, due to the worker, the strength of the worker, and uh, I think that's a sad, sad state of affairs that a company is afraid of their workers, of their empowered workers. You're right about that. It's my understanding in Delaware, they were a union shop, and here in Texas, Oh, oh, definitely non-union. <laughs> definitely non-union. And uh, matter of fact, I, I remember at one point there was a uh, there was an attempt at unionization. As a matter of fact, I had a at one time I had an agreement with Formosa, and the agreement was do no harm, and it was not only for the bay, it was for the community. And it was to empower workers. And I remember talking with the workers and they said this is the first time they ever had a person going after an environmental settlement. And they included the workers. And we said in our agreement, and Formosa shook hands with it, that if the workers wanted to organize, that Formosa would have to be hands off. They couldn't bring in union busters, and they brought in union busters and busted up what the workers' voice wanted to say. So I quit that agreement. Wow. Wonderful. Brian Paras, tell us what is going on here in Houston and Stinkadina, as the folks on the ground call it. Or the Petro Metro, or the... Uh... <laughs> We can go on and on, but uh, you know, actually, in Houston, we had we had some interesting results, um, kind of similar to the midterm elections after uh, Bush was elected uh, many many years ago, and we saw a big sweep of Democratic judges and elected officials, you know, across the board here in Houston. Harris County. And that's that's exciting because, you know, we are a very, very uh, important place. And, you know, we're at the center of a number of overlapping issues. Environmental justice is, is one, but many of the other issues that uh, intersect with 
with EJ are also, you know, going to be impacted. Um, so the immigration issue is a big deal here. And what, uh, what we saw last night, as Diane articulated, was just a, an amazing amount of people participating in the elections. In fact, the Latino vote surpassed all expectations. They had a 300% increase in voter participation. Uh, more Latinos voted here in uh, Harris County um, than they did during the presidential election. Um, so, so that's encouraging. And while Beto lost the Senate race, he got over 4 million votes in the state of Texas. And, and all of the major cities, you know, went, went blue. Um, so there's obviously work that needs to be done in rural places like <laughs> where Diane's at. Um, and that's, that's our charge, right? And, you know, on the environmental front here in the, in the county, we had some really important uh, changes in our commissioner's court. So it will be run by a Democratic majority now. And that's really hopeful, you know, as we look at the millions of dollars that will be coming, billions of dollars that will be coming to the area after Hurricane Harvey. Um, so that's going to be a a benefit to the low-income communities who are still trying to recover um, with housing needs and other issues. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing the work and, you know, keeping the Democrats' feet to the fire, too. Because um, we know in the South, yeah. especially, yeah. just having a Democratic representative doesn't mean that they're completely aligned with the uh, values and issues of the people. This is Michelle Roberts of the On the Ground Show. I'm on the ground here in Pasadena, Texas. Hugh Stink, Stinkadena, with some of Texas' most amazing activists, Brian Paraz, Diane Wilson. Thank you so very much for all of the hard work that you all do. You Thank bet. you. You bet. Grab them by the midterms. <laughs> I love that one. I don't want to take no time to write this down. I don't want to say how I feel right now. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow may never come. But for you or me, life is not promised. Tomorrow may never show up. For you or me, life is not promised. Yeah. Perfect man, I'm shining to the best that I can with what it is I have. And I ain't no perfect man, I'm shining to the best that I can with this mic in my hand. Even though it's feedback, I'm still won't come at you. Put my heart and soul into it, y'all. Best I do you feel me? This is Michelle Roberts, and I'm on the ground with Amina Maxi, an amazing activist from. Detroit, Michigan, within an organization called Gaia. Amina, on this post-election day, tell us what the elections mean to Detroit, Michigan. So I am so excited. <laughs> I could not wait to wake up this morning to see the results because in Michigan, at the state legislature level and at the federal we have had zero power. Basically, if you're black 
and you're in Michigan, it's likely that uh, you've been gerrymandered and that most of most of the folks and most folks I know were not happy with the political system at the state or the federal level. And so there was a ballot initiative on the ballot this year to basically stop gerrymandering in Michigan. And Michigan is one of the most gerrymandered states. And so for me, that was one of the things I was most excited about. And it passed. There's going to be an independent commission. So it's, it's awesome. And a lot of the state, so many Democrats won. And we know like in Michigan that they do not represent us. One of my friends, uh, her name is Rashida Tlaib. She's an amazing um, organizer, has been doing really great work in Detroit for years. She used to be a state representative. She, along with the representative, I think from Minnesota, will be the two first Muslim women in the federal legislature, which is like, that's dope. Um, there's a woman governor, Democrat, that was just elected in Michigan. You know, I'll hope for the best, but I'm, you know, when it comes to the state level, Democrats and Republicans sometimes are similar, but I have hope. And just in general, they just legalized marijuana in the state. There's just been a lot of awesome progress. And so I'm looking forward to, right now I'm in Houston with you at this great meeting that we had on environmental justice and plastics. I'm really excited to go home and like see my friends and, you know, celebrate with them. But I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful. And as we know and have talked about, the last few years in this country have been a bit alarming when it comes to the racial just racism that's been happening and xenophobia and misogyny and all the things. And so seeing how many women were elected gives me a lot of hope. So I'm excited. So I'm going to tell us about this plastics meeting that, you know, we're here together and just finished uh, a meeting on what should our communities, environmental justice communities know about plastics? What our communities should know about plastics is that when you are going into the store or you're going to McDonald's and you get your plastic cup and you have your plastic lid and you have your plastic straw, that plastic has had an impact somewhere in the United States on a community of color or on a poor community because the plastics don't come from nowhere. They, in order to make plastics, we have to process it. And a lot of those communities that live around petrochemical companies are black and brown and poor communities. And so the main thing that folks should know about plastics is that in the next few years, there's going to be billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars invested in making a lot more plastics that we don't need. And the impacts on our health already are happening are going to be worse. And so we can do something about it now. And it's a, it's a new area of work for me to learn about what's the connection between my health, our environment, climate, and plastics. And I think that it's our job and kind of some, something that I feel responsibility around to make sure that folks are aware of how plastics are connected in this toxic system that we're in. And once folks have that awareness and have that education, they can take it where they may as long as we give them some clear action steps of where they can go. But we've all been doing work. I know you, I know that you have, through the work you've done for years on environmental justice, on the connection between chemicals and plastics and health. And so how can we, knowing there's going to be billions and billions and billions invested in it here in the U.S., how can we 
stop that so that it doesn't continue on. Thank you, Amina. Thank you, Michelle. This is the new world water and every drop counts. You can laugh and take it as a joke if you wanna, but it don't rain a full week some summers. And it's about to get real wild in the half. You be buying every yard to take Heads is acting wild, sipping room, pumping dank Competing with the next man for higher playing rank So I ain't got time, try to be Big Hank F*** a bank, I need a 20-year water tank Cause while these knuckleheads is out here sweating they guts The sun is sitting in the treetops, burning the woods And as the flame from the blaze get higher and higher They say, don't drink the water, we need it for the fire New York is drinking that new world And all of California is drinking that new world All your north and down south is drinking that new world Used to have minerals and zinc in that new world Now they say it got lead the water table lopsided used to be free now of course you will feed cause all things fill they load as they roll across the sea man you gotta cook with it baby clean with it that's right when it's hot summertime you feed for that it no. you gotta put it in the iron you steaming that's with right. that's what they dress wounds and treat diseases Shout with it the rich and poor black and white got need for that's it that's right and everybody in the world can agree with Let this know. consumption promotes health and easiness that's goes right. too long without it on the surface you this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Earlier this week, I sat down with journalist John Jeter to talk to him about the elections. Joining me for this segment is John Jeter. He's the author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He was the Washington Post Bureau Chief for Southern Africa and the Post Bureau Chief for South America. So... I wanted to talk to you uh, about the election. Uh, I think that your posts on social media are the only ones that seem to offer a different suggestion or reason for the, I guess, a smaller blue wave than what they expected to happen. It was definitely not a blue tsunami. Uh, A blue low tide, I like to call it. Okay, a blue low tide. So... Why don't you just start by giving me your general reaction to the election? So uh, I think what we've seen in Tuesday's election, we've seen a couple of things, but they're all related. It's the product of, I think, a Democratic Party that has, since the late 60s, and especially since the Reagan era, uh, drifted farther and farther away from its uh, most devoted, most loyal voting bloc, which is African Americans. And you see at the same time the Republican Party drifting closer and closer, strengthening its relationship with this base, which is white men. So I haven't seen the figures for uh, the voter turnout. For the voter turnout, I know that numbers showed there was a big spike in registration and early voting. I wonder, though, how much uh, the black electorate accounts for that spike. I think the, the main problem with the Democrats and the failure of this so-called blue wave is that they really don't put forth candidates who are very inspiring, particularly for blacks. We, and particularly after eight years of Barack Obama, we didn't see any particular change. And I think even people, black people who are, who were really enamored with Obama, now I hear them saying, we're glad he was president, but really nothing changed. If anything, things got worse. And so I think it's going to be very difficult for the Democratic Party to put forth the same kinds of neoliberal candidates, the same kinds of uninspired candidates, the same kind of, of candidates, black and white, 
who you know aren't talking about single payer health care, aren't talking about police violence against blacks and people of color, who aren't talking about the problem with the quality of the jobs in the United States. And so, you know, I'll give you as one, I think, really potent example. Look just right next door to where you are in Maryland, where Ben Jealous, the former head of the NAACP, a son of went up against a incumbent Republican governor in a state where one of every three voters is black and he lost by double digits. Well, the reason for that is because Ben Jealous doesn't have a grassroots movement, a movement that's based in the black community, that's based perhaps in organized labor as it used to be. And so when he won the nomination, it was based mostly on his own charisma, his own name recognition. And the Democratic Party, which, you know, as we know, is mostly old white men, aren't particularly invested in Ben Jealous winning uh, the governorship. They get everything they want from the Republican governor. So they don't invest the kind of resources. They don't really try to turn out the vote. And Ben Jealous has nothing else to rely on. This is by design, right? This is, we saw 20 and 30 years ago, particularly, I would say the apogee was with Harold Washington's election in Chicago. And we saw these black mayors, Marion Barry in D.C., Coleman Young in Detroit, uh, all these black mayors that we saw a generation ago, two generations ago, they had tremendous support from the black community. It was more than an election. It was a crusade. And, you know, these scientists talk about solar systems that are so far, so remote, that you can't see the sun. But you know it's there because of the way the planets move. Well, our politics is kind of the same way, right? We can't see the sun, that thing around which everything orbits, but we know it's there because of the way the planets are moving. And so what's happened since Harold Washington in Chicago? Well, what we've seen is this the, the Democratic Party sort of consolidate control over the entire political process, from the nomination process to uh, the elections to phone banks, all these things are controlled by really a a very small cadre of mostly white men. And there's not much of a grassroots movement. The same can be said for Andrew Gillum, I think. The same can be said for Stacey Abrams in Georgia. And they don't have enough of a grassroots movement to overcome this obstacle, really, which is a a Democratic Party that works for Wall Street, doesn't work for the black community, doesn't want to work for the black community. And, and so I think that's what we're what we're seeing now. I think that's what we're going to see. I think the Democratic Party is facing an, an existential threat. I think the black political class is facing an existential threat. I want to get to that threat in a minute, but I wanted to go back and ask you particularly about Andrew Gillum first. Because just from my own, you know, probably cursory attention to that campaign it was my understanding that he did come out of a a kind of a grassroots movement that he was an activist in Tallahassee people knew him that way and I guess it's only through your social media conversations that I I mean I knew about him turning his back on the BDS movement which we Mm -hmm. talk a lot talk about a lot on this show the boycott uh, divestment sanctions movement against the apartheid state of Israel but mm-hmm. I didn't know that he had disavowed other things like perhaps single payer health care he embraced regime change in Venezuela hey. um, 
And, and I don't know the full menu of things that he did, but I do, I do suspect this. And some people on my Facebook page, I think, confirmed it. While these things aren't important, I think, to all black people, I do think they signal to black people who aren't, you know, completely conscious, perhaps, of, of the BDS movement, who aren't completely conscious of what's going on in Venezuela, in Venezuela. But it signals to them that this, this is the new boss. Same as the old boss, that he's not talking about these things that we want to hear and that we've heard uh, white politicians, white Democrats, particularly in the South, who have done our communities harm, right, saying the exact same things. So I, I think that's where the problem comes in is that well, even Marion Barrett, you know, and I, I think Marion Barrett, you know, at some point became cynical. But when he first started out, he was a radical mayor and he was saying things that were radical and different. I mean, it just, it just, it hit your ear differently. And I think that's what we're going to have to get back to because people recognize the truth, even when they don't sort of know specifically what you're talking about. They, they recognize the truth. We hear it so seldom, it kind of jumps up out at us. Uh, and I think this is the problem, you know, with, with, with Andrew Gillum. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure about Stacey Abrams, but I suspect, uh, it's the same. I think this is true for a lot of our black, uh, politicians these days, particularly in this age of Obama. You know, but Obama was a special case. I mean, you had, uh, uh, first of all, you did, you never had, he was the first, so we didn't really have anything to judge it against. And you had this almost complete uh, support of the, of the, of the f financial community. Uh, and so I don't think that anyone, I, I can't imagine anyone's going to be able to replicate that anytime soon. And, and, and I don't think um, frankly, the black people are going to fall for that bait and switch again. I just don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I think you're going to have to have, um, but you know, it, it, it sounds almost uh, counterintuitive in America, at least. But black people are really quite sophisticated voters, right? We vote in our own interest. I read somewhere, or a friend told me that ninety-seven um, percent. I mean, just think about that: ninety-seven percent, almost one hundred percent. Every single black woman who went to vote in Georgia voted for Stacey Abrams. For white women, it was only about a quarter, one in four. So think about that, right? We vote in our own interest. We've had the Me Too movement. We've had all of these events that have, you know, we've had Trump, who is uh, an avowed, a, a, a proud uh, serial harasser of women. Uh, we've had all these events that have sort of... Uh, revealed the contradictions of patriarchy and yet 75 percent of all white women in georgia voted for the white man the white man i don't know much about his politics but he couldn't possibly be proposing to do more for women than this black woman candidate uh 97 percent of black women in georgia voted for abrams right uh only one quarter one out of four a white woman voted for Abrams. 75% voted for Kim. Hmm. Wow. You know, I, I do think that, you know, even though we're having this discussion, most people will be kind of shocked to hear that about Gilliam. And I think unlike him, though, Stacey Abrams did back single-payer health care and the progressive agenda. If we follow the logical line of what you're saying, if black people aren't going to be fooled again, if black people aren't going to be fooled again, then, you know, how how can a truly progressive candidate distinguish him or herself and still, 
I don't know, beat back what what would surely be corporate opposition and and big corporate money against him or her. Well, I, 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 that's a great question. I don't have a firm answer, but I know this: what we're seeing with our black Democrats now, and even the progressive ones, is we're seeing this hurdle that's been thrown in their way, and they it, really you can't get over it, at least not by yourself. I guess we'll have to leave it there. I know that you are busy and, and have to move on to other things, but I want to thank John Jeter for joining me today. He is the author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. And he was a Washington Post bureau chief for Southern Africa from 1999 to 2003 and also the Post Bureau Chief for South America from 2003 to 2004. And he joined me today from Indiana. Thank you, John, for joining me. Thank you, Esther, for having me. And John Jeter will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played this hour included Capture Land by Chronix, I Wish I Knew How It Feels to Be Free by Nina Simone, Umi Says by Black Star, and New World Water by Yasin Bey, formerly Most Deaf. You can write us at our website, onthegroundshow.org. We'd love to hear from you. If you're a listener and you are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On The Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with green letters that say On the Ground. On the Ground Show is also on Twitter, and we are on iTunes under the title WPFW On the Ground. I'm Esther Everum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.